the problem is like people uh, simply aren't educated about nuclear. I would say one of the reasons behind that is it's actually incredibly counterintuitive. Like nuclear power doesn't really make much sense uh, to the human mind. So like you think of, um, you know, just like a barrel of oil and you like think about how much power that barrel of oil can make. Um, and then you think of uranium and you, and if you ask somebody like, like what's the comparison between, you know, how much energy you can get out of uranium and how much you can get out of, uh, you know, like this, this barrel of oil. And they'd probably say like, well, uranium, it seems like maybe it's like 10 times more. Like that seems like a lot. Well, it turns out it's actually like 2 million times more. But now we can actually look at China and say, okay, they have 21 reactors under construction right now. We have two. Mm -hmm. And they're building them for 2 billion a gigawatt hour, yeah. whereas we're building them for 15. So there's clearly something extremely broken about our system of building nuclear capacity. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Nick Solheim. I am the COO of American Moment. And as I'm sure you've noticed, um, my favorite Indian uh, is not here with me today. Um, he has left me for uh, fundraising travel so that we can continue to do our jobs. Um, so you are stuck with me for today. Uh, we got a very fascinating um, episode, pretty unlike, I think, anything we've ever done before um you you guys are definitely gonna like it a lot uh but before i dive into uh our our guest i want to plug our website americamoment.org if this is your first time uh listening to our podcast ever um head there to learn more about our mission our programming um all the events we have uh that sort of thing make sure to go check that out um also if you've been listening to this podcast for a while please rate and review five stars only um feel free to leave a written review as well every once in a while we we like to read those on the show um if you are a uh, journalist you are also free to rate uh five stars um and you're also free to write about this topic because it's super interesting um today we have in a very very good friend of mine um i've been friends with a Mr. Isaiah Taylor uh, for a couple years now. Um, got to know him um, actually through our for former employee, uh, Emma Waters, uh, uh, and he's become a great friend, resource over the years. Uh, we talk super frequently. Um, always been looking for an excuse to pull him in and have him on the show, and, and now we've got one. Um, Isaiah is working on a, a great startup, um, basically working on nuclear energy. And so today's uh, podcast episode is about American nuclear energy, what the Chinese are doing, um, how we can use energy to uh, reshore uh, domestic manufacturing and production of all the goods that we consume. Um, super fascinating episode. I Isaiah is a very intelligent guy. I believe he's the first high school dropout we've ever had on moment of truth which is pretty cool we dive into that story a little bit um so isaiah is a uh, self-taught engineer entrepreneur and high school dropout before starting companies the first of which he created when he was 17 isaiah worked in software for the dod private defense and aerospace and recently the world's largest hedge fund isaiah is now building valor atomics where his goal is to revitalize the u.s industrial base and support industrial reshoring 
by providing cheap and abundant energy with nuclear power. He lives in the Idaho Panhandle with his wife, Sophie, and three kids. We will go now to Isaiah Taylor. Isaiah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, uh, you know how we like to start the show. Tell us a little bit more about the great story of Isaiah Taylor, uh, who you are, and how you got where you are today. Sure. So, the great story of Isaiah Taylor is not super long yet. Um, I'm 24, so there's a, a little bit in there, but um, you know, much to be written, I guess. Uh, I dropped out of high school when I was 16. Um, that is one of the more interesting things about me. But uh, since then, I've been working on starting companies and uh, doing software engineering for various people. I've done um, two startups. Uh, the first one um, was an auto shop, actually, which is super fun to start. And uh, that company's still uh, going and doing great. But really, uh, I've been you know passionate for a long time about energy and the American industrial base, if you want to call it, and expanding that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of my um, you know, professional work has been in engineering and then uh, my, you know, personal research has been into energy and, uh, you know, how the United States does that in the next 20, 30, 50 years. So I, I don't think we've ever had anybody on the show before who dropped out of high school. And I awesome. think that that's a very interesting perspective to have. Tell us a little bit more about like the decision tree there, yeah, sure. <laughs> how, th how that happened. Sure. So, um, yeah, honored to be the first high school dropout on the show. Uh, <laughs> fingers crossed. Um, yeah. So during basically like middle school and early high school, I did some homework, uh, but not a ton of homework and mostly was doing actual like software engineering projects first, just for myself and my own interest. And then I actually started contracting, um, and, uh, there were, there are various freelance sites that you could sign up for and, um, you know, just list a little portfolio and get jobs here and there. I would actually take, I, I went to a school where you weren't allowed to have computers or phones or anything like that, but I would take a notebook and I'd write out, you know, what the client needed, uh, on my notebook. And then I'd have my, you know, book open for whatever history class mm -hmm. and I'd be writing code in my notebook and I'd get oh home from goodness. school. And instead of doing my homework, I would be typing up the code that I'd written in my notebook, you know, during class. And you're like 15, 16 yeah, at this yeah, point? Yeah, 14. Yeah, 14, 15. <laughs> um, Man. And yeah, I mean, I was just having fun. Uh, it, it started off just having a ton of fun. I, I remember at one point my dad told me, um, you know, hey, like, you're going to start making money with this. And I was like, you realize, like, I'm having fun, right? They're not going to pay me to have fun all day. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's really how it started out. Uh, eventually when I was 16, I got, uh, connected to like a local chat group of developers and kind of started talking to people in there. And someone just said, Hey, you know, I need a junior developer to come work on this. Um, met the guy in a Starbucks, showed him some of the stuff I'd worked on. And, uh, he hired me right out of high school, uh, dropped out, I think the next week and, uh, yeah, really haven't looked back since. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Um, and how did you get into you know, from being a, a, a junior developer to a startup, again, especially in such a condensed period of time. Yeah. Like, yeah. how did that happen? Yeah. I, I've always had uh, just an extremely high sense of urgency about things. Um, I, you know, I, I love starting things as soon as I have an idea, I want to see them through. And then, you know, I want to see them happen as quickly as possible. Um, for me, like I said, software started out really being something fun to do. Um, and then it, you know, ended up being something to build companies around. 
but I think I've always uh, wanted to create businesses, create technology. Um, that's sort of what I've been interested. Uh, actually, you know, if there are parents listening, I'm sure there's lots of parents um, with young kids. I think one of the things that was really influential for me was actually my parents um, really had only like one or two things in my room. One was like a box of Legos. Mm -hmm. And then the other one was um, the illustrated uh, encyclopedia of science and technology. Hmm. And it's like, a, I think a 20 volume set. And it was just like the one shelf that was at like eye level for me uh, in my bedroom. So I would just read those constantly and uh, and was super interested in it. So um, yeah, you know, the like traditional school path, I actually went to a great school, I had a fun time. But I think I've always sort of felt that you have to do your own research, you have to understand things from first principles. And especially that anybody can do that. I think that's one of the most important um, you know, beliefs that I have is like anybody can actually go and understand any field all the way down to the physics, all the way down to the math. And there's a lot of accumulated, you know, knowledge in any specific field. And it's, it's good to go and learn that knowledge and learn those best practices. But like everybody can understand why something happens the way it does, why something is built the way it's been built, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So we've frequently had, um, startup founders on, on the show before. So quick digression from what I know we're going to get into. Um, what do you think about startup culture in general? Like, yeah. I, I think there are some strengths there, some weaknesses, yeah. but yeah. you know, being a founder yourself, what's your take on it? Yeah, I would, I would say this, I mean, start with the strengths. Um, startup culture, right, has affected everything around us, I would say in an, an incredible way. Like, you know, I'm wearing an Apple watch. I've got an iPhone, you know, on the table over there. That iPhone has 50 apps on it. Like I got here via Uber, like it's everywhere in our lives. Um, I think Uber especially is, is like hilarious because um, it's just how you get anywhere in a city at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, you do it on your phone, just like Steve Jobs in a garage. And then somebody built an app and then there's people running around on their iPhones and their Androids also using these apps. Um, not to mention, you know, social media and these other things, but like it's extremely embedded into how we live as Americans at this point and, and even in other countries. What, you know, people in their garages do in Silicon Valley ends up affecting the entire world. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that's like the, the huge positive of that is the fact that um, in startup culture, which is distributed outside of California now, it's, it's everywhere. I live in northern Idaho. Um, there's a mentality that if something is broken, you can fix it. And I think that's probably like the single most positive thing that has come out of that whole ecosystem is like responsibility taking. So just looking at a problem, looking at society, saying that thing's broken and looking at sort of a field of heroes that have fixed broken things before. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a huge positive. On the negative side, um, you know, certainly some things can get commercialized that maybe shouldn't have been like social media has, you can, you can debate about the positive and, and negatives of that. I would say on the personal level for founders, there can also be uh, a negative, which is getting caught up in like chasing quick wealth. Mm -hmm. um, like a lot of crypto ended up there, uh, even though like I love the goals of crypto that has become like 90% of the ecosystem is like trying to get rich really, really rapidly. And, um, I definitely think uh, part of my early motivation, like starting companies had to do with that. And it's really good to get a couple of like difficult failures under your belt mm -hmm. because it'll make you realize that 
chasing that is uh is like not worth it um you know the, the wealth is good like wealth is great but chasing it in like the short term i'm going to do this startup i'm going to raise 100 million dollars i'm going to sell it for 500 two years later like that'll get really um old to chase really really fast so mm-hmm. so tell us um more about what it is exactly that you're doing now yeah so this is a project that i think i kind of kicked off five years ago uh in my spare time it, it's really been my my passion project um it's been something that i've I've sort of had in the back pocket is like, I'm going to do this once I've made it. Um, Mm -hmm. Actually, it's kind of how I always thought about this. And, um, you know, recently just kind of looked around at my life and realized like, you know, I live in the most incredible time in the history of the world, the most incredible country in the history of the world. Um, I have made it in every meaningful sense. And I would say every American, you know, who has a loving family, like has made it like we've made it everybody, you know, like. (laughs) This is the we're wealthiest. So <laughs> we're we are we are so back. This is the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. Um, so there's more to say about that, and I'll and I'll say more about that in a little bit. But yeah, so uh, the company that I'm doing now is is Valor Atomics. Um, that is a Lord of the Rings reference. Uh, and our goal with Valor is to uh, reduce the price of electricity in the United States for American homes and factories. Factories, especially, uh, is a huge goal of mine. I want people to have cheap power to manufacture goods in the US. Um, This is something that I think people underrate and underappreciate is that electrical input cost is sometimes the place that competitiveness breaks down with other countries. So China's uh, electrical cost is sitting at around 7 cents a kilowatt hour and the US is sitting at like 12.5 cents per kilowatt hour. So there's like a natural advantage built in there even you know outside of the labor and tooling and factories and all that kind of stuff that china has or other countries have just the energy cost alone is this like huge component into the cost of any physical good Mm -hmm. Um, and so yeah i I want to massively reduce energy costs in the united states and the way i want to do that is with nuclear power but unlike any other nuclear startup that i know of uh, i want to do it by actually synthesizing hydrocarbons so hydrocarbons are uh you know, like they sound like hydrogen and carbon. We're talking about petroleum. We're talking about natural gas. Uh, coal is an example of a heavier hyd- hydrocarbon. And uh, these are incredibly energy dense liquids uh, or gases in the case of nat gas that power 90% of our world. Uh, our cars use them, our planes use them. If you're getting electricity, you know, here, actually, there's a fair amount of nuclear around here, but most of the United States is powered by burning natural gas and turbines. So these hydrocarbons really, you know, propel our world forward. They're how we eat and how we live. And uh, I think they're a fantastic thing. I want them to be cheaper, though. Uh, I want them to be 10 times cheaper. And I think we can do that by synthesizing them with nuclear power. So zooming out a little bit, you said you've been thinking about this for five years. Yeah. How, what's the story? How did you first get into yeah. this? So I've been interested in nuclear for a very long time because... My great-grandfather was a top nuclear physicist on the Manhattan Project. Wow. So that's, you know, just a huge family legacy. Um, You know, one of my most, like, prized possessions of all time is uh, my great-grandmother, his wife, uh, at my dinner table in in Colorado, back when I lived in Colorado. Um, She was talking about, you know, growing up and started talking about her father's, you know, Ford Model T and, and this kind of stuff. And I turned on my Apple Watch recorder. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we just started talking. She talked about um, living at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. So this city that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers just created overnight in the woods of Tennessee. They drew a circle on a map in Tennessee. Uh, it was all just you know a mountain ridge called Oak Ridge. And they said, uh, we're going to put a city there. And uh, over the course of three years, it grew from you know, a bunch of trees to uh, a town of 60,000 people. And uh, that's always been just an incredible inspiration, just you know, hearing about them living there and uh, raising children there even um, in the midst of this you know, great national project uh, that is, I think, just a testament to, to the energy of our nation that, that we can you know, put something together of that scale. Mm-hmm. So that was always an inspiration to me growing up, um, nuclear specifically. The rest of the project, um, I think, was actually pretty organic where I just started looking into how do we reduce electricity costs. And the particular reason I was interested in that is I started looking at the development of artificial intelligence and robotics and started thinking about like what does the global economy look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years when artificial intelligence has you know, reached a certain point and robotics have reached a certain point, um, I'm sort of predicting, projecting that the, the cost of power is gonna become even more important than it is now. It's already important, but it's gonna become 10 times more important because if you think about like how our factories are gonna change, Tesla's already doing this. They've got you know their Optimus robots walking around moving boxes, like they're starting to actually use robotics on the floor. Um, what that means is like, physical goods are going to be less about labor cost and they're going to be more about power cost. Hmm. Um, And so I think if the United States wants to be competitive, which of course we do, this is the greatest nation on earth, so we should win, um, we're going to need cheaper power. And so that's something I started looking into five years ago. And and, uh, Valor, I think, is the sort of output of, I think this is my sixth or seventh iteration of how we fix electrical costs in the US. And uh, I'm really happy with this one. So... Why is, um, generally speaking, American power um, per kilowatt hour more expensive yeah. uh, than some of these other nations? Like, is it is it regulation? Surely it isn't a lack of resources. Like, no. What's the, what's the deal? That's a great question. Uh, when I was walking into your studio, there's a, um, there's a light post out there, and it's got a poster on the light post, and it says, tell the EPA to act now add power station regulations and Uh it's got a picture of smokestacks um with you know carbon coming out the smokestack and uh it's got a phone number to call and i'm not sure that maybe they got like a march going or something like Mm -hmm. that um that's a great picture of why electricity costs more uh, here than it does in china uh if you look at sort of the philosophy between the two nations um china has no qualms about burning coal as fast as they get it um, as dirty as they get it. They have no qualms about drilling as much natural gas as they can get their hands on, uh, refining oil and burning it, like no qualms. Uh, the United States, obviously, like we have this sort of nat- national conscience about like atmospheric gases and, um, and heat and all these sorts of things, uh, which China always is sort of signaling and sort of virtue signaling toward that. But uh, there's not much behind it. Like, you know, 40, 47% of all coal plants that have been turned on in the last three decades are China's Belt and Road Initiative going to African countries, Asian countries, building new coal plants. They're basically the only ones left who are building coal plants. Um, so yeah, like they have a, they have a very different like moral philosophy around energy 
Um, they have no, you know, shame about energy and, and using it for transportation and food and whatever it needs to be used for. Um, and then the secondary thing is like they're, you know, a, a command economy. So like they can just order more plants to be built. But I think it's actually the, the bigger one is that like philosoph philosophical difference. Mm -hmm. And what's the mix of our, um, you know, energy resources currently? Yeah. Like you don't have to give exact numbers. Yes. Yeah, so about six or seven percent of our electrical, uh, electricity generation in the U.S. is nuclear. Uh, about 40 percent is burning natural gas and turbines. Um, I believe around 20 percent is hydroelectric. Um, there's a small amount of just like burning petrol. Um, uh, and there's just like a little bit of wind and solar. So and has that has nuclear, you know, is 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 seven percent six or seven percent like the the highest it's ever been did we did we experience a uh no more of so a moon in the past we or? have over the last 10 years um decreased our nuclear fleet by 10 percent and um actually we just turned on the first new nuclear power plant in the u.s uh a month ago in georgia uh, it's the first one we turned on in 30 years hmm. so we have not turned on a new nuclear power plant you know, other than this one for 30 years. And obviously we've shut some down in, in that time because they retire eventually. And if you look at uh, the cost of that, so they, they just turned on a 1.1 uh, uh, gigawatt uh, nuclear power plant in Georgia. There's a twin that's coming alongside it. That's another 1.1. So you're looking at 2.2 gigawatts and they spent $30 billion to turn on 2.2 gigawatts of power capacity. Now you look at what China's doing, um, they are basically spending uh, $2 billion per gigawatt. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at $15 billion per gigawatt versus $2 billion per gigawatt. And that's the entire answer to why we aren't building more nuclear. Yeah. Is it uh, just environmental regulations or is it like, I could see an argument that um, American nuclear power plants are safer generally speaking, than, than the ones in China, but also that there are more um, burdensome regulations around them. Yeah, who is it that says uh, scale, what is it, a quantity has a quality all its own? Mm. I can't remember who said that, but there's actually something safer about doing something a lot than doing yeah. it a little. Um, we'll have to see what China's safety record is like on their on their nuclear power plants, but I would not be at all surprised if there's a negligible safety difference. And we're talking about seven or eight times the cost. Yeah. Really what it comes down to, um, this is sort of like a fundamental thing that I realized in my research over the last five years, is the United States simply doesn't want nuclear power plants in their backyard. Like the people don't want it. People yeah. have, I, I saw a survey that said like 60% of French people and like France has been on 75% nuclear power. Mm -hmm. um, that's like 75% of their electricity generation. Even so, 60% of French people thought that uh, nuclear power was a carbon emitter hmm. so like <laughs> it's it's got terrible press like nuclear is terrible press we all have images in our you know minds of uh three mile island and fukushima um these things are like burned into our minds we think about the atomic bomb so nuclear has bad press um that bubbles its way up into the regulatory environment and we get you know, senators who, you know, will not even think about it and representatives who won't even think about it, which means that we get the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, um, being, you know, somewhat set in in its in its ways. And it, to their credit, actually, like 
I don't pin everything on the people running these regulatory agencies. Um, I tend to think that the like regulators actually have to be driven by external forces. Uh, there has to be entrepreneurs who are like pushing the envelope on regulation. There has to be congressional support. There has to be presidential support. Like the regulators are going to kind of fit a solution that fits the climate, right? Mm -hmm. the, and by the climate, I mean the, you know, how everyone feels about it. And um, the problem is like people uh, simply aren't educated about nuclear. And um, I would say one of the reasons behind that is it's actually incredibly counterintuitive. Like nuclear power doesn't really make much sense uh, to the human mind. So like you think of, um, you know, just like a barrel of oil and you like think about how much power that barrel of oil can make. Um, and then you think of uranium and, you, and if you ask somebody like, like what's the comparison between, you know, how much energy you can get out of uranium and how much you can get out of, uh, you know, like this, this barrel of oil. And they'd probably say like, well, uranium seems like maybe it's like 10 times more. Like that seems like a lot. Well, it turns out it's actually like 2 million times more. Really? Yeah. And that doesn't make sense to our minds. Like we just can't picture that. <clears throat> um, so like for all these reasons, nuclear power in the US, um, I think it's going to take a long time until we can onshore nuclear in an efficient way with our existing regulatory process. Um, and so that's why I'm really focused on doing nuclear power, but doing it outside of, you know, people's backyards, doing it far away from, you know, where Americans are living, which means outside of the immediate concern of regulators who are put in place to protect the public and, uh, actually do it possibly in the ocean, possibly, you know, on container ships and, uh, generate hydrocarbons, which are are already used like distributed out the you know throughout the u.s we've got nat gas pipelines we've got tanker you know trucks for petrol this sort of thing so i think there's an opportunity here to um you know maybe hack it a little bit yeah what would the um international regulations on something like this be yeah. you know if you like say you take a container ship and float a bunch of like nuclear reactors into the middle of the pacific ocean yeah like what are so like what Russia's, are people going to say about so like, that? <laughs> so like Russia's doing that, right? So yeah. the first answer is like, it depends on which great power you're doing it like by. Mm. Um, you know, China just put a nuclear power plant in Pakistan. They put one in South Africa. So like in half of the world, the China influenced half of the world. They do whatever they want. Russia does whatever they want. Um, and a big reason for that is that they actually control a lot of the uranium supply, which is you know us kicking ourselves in the foot like we always do um but i would say in the sort of u.s half of the world that's influenced by you know our regulators i think that there is a lot of other nations looking to us to take the lead mm. so for instance if you're a you know an american nuclear startup other nations might want to see that you passed through the american you know, regulatory approval process. Because mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like the gold standard. Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. It's like, well, if you got through the NRC, then sure, you can operate it here. Um, I am really excited, though. There are lots of other um, regulatory environments popping up. So Canada has one that's much faster, um, much more innovative, uh, and uh, Australia as well. So there are new regulatory environments being created. Um, and, you know, my goal is like 
an American entrepreneur. I love the United States. Uh, I want to, you know, give the U.S. people incredibly cheap energy. Uh, but if we have to do it, you know, sort of outside of the normal place that a you know American startup would build nuclear uh, in order to give that to them, I'm perfectly fine with that. And I hope that it'll sort of motivate regulators to um, understand that there is really, really fundamental technology here that can transform our way of life. So going back in time a little bit, you know, you have the creation of the atomic bomb in in 45. Yeah. Um, What is the history of American nuclear energy? Like what? Yeah. You know, where did we go from there to where we are now? Yeah. Great question. So. Yeah, um, nuclear uh, nuclear power came right out of nuclear uh, you know weapon development, and a lot of it actually came out of the same lab. So, like Oak Ridge National Laboratory became uh, a nuclear power uh, laboratory after it was used for uh, the synthesis of uranium in the Manhattan Project. Los Alamos National Lab again turned into a, a really big center for nuclear research, and. Uh, yeah, in the 10, 15 years after World War II, we really created a, an incredible set of technologies for nuclear power, actually. Like those labs um, really went crazy with figuring out all of the ways that we can use nuclear power for really incredible things. They went down the paths of like, what's the most efficient we can possibly get nuclear energy? Can we synthesize new materials out of it? Can we you know, create uh, atoms that we didn't have access to otherwise? Um, through you know splitting atoms and, and neutron capture and these sorts of things, um, and it's really incredible to go back and read those reports. So, you know, reading PDFs on the U.S. Department of Energy from 1962, and uh, just the spirit of innovation that those people had was was amazing, uh, and the attitude of like, yes, we can actually go build this with our hands like if you look at what the early nuclear reactors were like it was literally just like teams of people in some sheds with normal industrial equipment like smashing atoms together. exactly yeah <laughs> or yeah, yeah or you know forging uh you know the nuclear core themselves mm-hmm. and you know processing the uranium and putting it in and creating the pumps and you know all this kind of stuff and at some point we transitioned uh like the rest of the energy economy did to being an extremely highly regulated thing. And that changes the dynamic from like, we can build these things and we can build them fast and cheaply to it takes 15 to 20 years to turn these things on and they cost, you know, eight, nine times more than they should, um, you know, and they, t- and they you know, overrun budget, overrun time, and then we just end up doing it less. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely been a, um, you know, a regulatory burden that's been placed on the entire industry that has slowed it down significantly. What were other nations doing during that same time period? Like you mentioned, France is yep. 75%, yeah. you know, nuclear powered. Yeah. Um, where did, where did they go right? I guess. Yeah. And being able to make that jump. So quickly? yeah, the French example is, is pretty incredible. If you look at their graph of like what, you know, their, uh, their electricity was and then what it became it was, you know, almost all natural gas, like everybody is. Um, a lot of that, I believe, came from Russia. Don't fact check me on that, but I think most of it was probably from Russia. And uh, yeah, in the space of about um, like eight or nine years, it became 75% nuclear. Hmm. They just said, yeah, this is a great technology. Um, one of the French uh, diplomats has said like every, 
you know, country has its own natural resources. The natural resource that France has for energy is uh, a populace that likes nuclear. <laughs> That's their natural resource because yeah. the fact is nuclear energy is just so incredible. Um, it's really just a, a perception problem. Yeah. And how about the Russians and the Chinese? What were, yeah. what were their developments yeah, like so over that time period? The Russian uh, you know, nuclear energy program also came out of their uh, weapons program. And uh, they have, you know, continued to invest in it and are, are currently working on, you know, remote vision as well. Something that, um, you know, something that they're willing to be very experimental on and, and you know, operate in a way that benefits themselves. They, similar to, you know, China, um, they've had setbacks based on the nature of their economy, but on the flip side, you know, are, are less apologetic about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the biggest like issues is like we can't be apologetic about energy. Like energy is how we live. Energy is great. Um, I like to point out like the sun, uh, our sun has is putting out more energy every second than the entire human race has ever used. Mm. So if like you look, if you add up all of the energy we have ever used as a human race, the sun releases that into the void every second. So like energy actually is not something we should be thinking about as if it's a constrained resource. And other countries of the world, China, Russia, don't think of it that way. They think of it as a way to, you know, propel their industries and make things cheaper for their people. Um, on the flip side, though, they're not as innovative as we are. And that's, they're, they're always sort of following what we're doing. Uh, China, like notoriously, just steals everything that we do and uh, copies us, you know, a couple of years later. Um, but like even so, they haven't even caught up to some of our most innovative ideas. Like we've been even just in the '60s and '70s creating concepts for nuclear, which are you know 20, 30 times better than even the existing nuclear power plants that are being built today in the U.S. And I think that it's just an issue of we have to have the collective will as a nation to embrace that, like embrace low energy cost. Um, and particularly entrepreneurs like myself who can push it forward. What are the other, like speaking of entrepreneurs, what are, what are the other big players in, in this space? Or yeah. has it mostly been kind of regulated out of existence where there are yeah. just a couple it's conglomerates? Both. It's both. Okay. It's both been regulated out of existence and there are players. Um, New Scale uh, is a company that just got its reactor design approved by the NRC um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's a traditional nuclear reactor, light water reactor. And, uh, you know, Oak Glow is a, is a recent one that announced a project at the Idaho National Laboratory. There are, uh, I, would ex I would say there are a lot of nuclear projects. I think all of them are m sort of going up against the regulatory environment and trying to, trying to just sort of do it slowly over 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. that, that seems to be the consensus right now. It's like eventually the consensus on nuclear energy will change because it has to, because nuclear is so good, right? Mm -hmm. um, and even though I think that they're right in the long term, I think we can move 10 times faster. This is going back to like sense of urgency, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not willing to wait, you know, 20 years for us to get cheaper energy especially as AI and robotics develop so quickly. Like we're already starting to see uh, the LLM type systems with AI where it, they're starting to exhibit more general intelligence, mating that with advanced robotics. What that means is you actually have a somewhat, you know, generally intelligent robot that can do a bunch of things on a factory floor. 
if you translate that, you know, out to 10, 15 years of uh, building factories, like energy costs is going to become very, very important. And so I think we need to move 10 times faster on nuclear than we than we currently are. So these guys that are making basically a 20, 30 year bet, as yeah. you've said, that the, that the market's going to kind of turn in their favor in that time period, are they, are these like organizations that are affiliated with like DARPA or are they like just guys with super deep pockets? Mm -hmm. Like what's the, yeah. a lot how, of how them, can they afford to wait that long? <laughs> yeah. A lot of them are guys with super deep pockets. Um, a lot of our, uh, you know, great American industrialists uh, have backed a lot of these projects. Um, Gates has been putting money into nuclear for a really long time. And it, it's sort of a, um, you know, it, it's almost a philanthropic thing at this point to put money into nuclear. You're like, hmm. we need power. And so this is this is something that should be invested in. There are other companies in the class of like small modular reactors that I think are more immediately financially viable because you can actually sell them to the US government. So you can say, hey, this military installation needs power, you know, buy our modular reactor that we put on site and we'll power this military installation, that sort of thing. And when you say modular, like how big are we talking? So like there's a startup out there uh, called Radiant that has one that'll fit in a semi-truck trailer. Wow. Yeah, and like it'll power, you know, uh, it'll power a small military installation. It'll it'll power, you know, a small town in West Virginia just mm. off of a semi-truck trailer. And that yeah. sort of thing is amazing. But again, like they have to go up against so much regulation. They have to convince, I mean, if you want to put a nuclear power plant somewhere, you're not just getting the NRC to say that you can build it. You have to talk to a city council with concerned citizens on it. You got to talk yeah. to a zoning board. You're going to talk to a state. You're going to talk to U.S. government and then the IAEA. So there's like six layers of regulators uh, that you have to talk to to put anything that's doing nuclear fission anywhere in the U.S. Um, so I kind of go back to like the SpaceX Tesla model, which is I think regulatory um, bodies kind of have to look to entrepreneurs to see how things really ought to be done. Mm -hmm. Like the the regulators on nuclear at the end of the day, really just don't want there to be a terrible meltdown that like kills a bunch of people. Like that's, yeah. that's what they're trying to avoid. And they don't necessarily know the right way to do this. They're on top of the latest technologies, but like they don't have the vision of the future, which is the entrepreneur's job. Mm -hmm. So for instance, like molten salt reactors are basically not uh, able to melt down. Uh, there's this incredible property that again was discovered in the 60s uh, in Oak Ridge National Laboratory. We basically invented a, a nuclear power station that can't melt down, um, but we haven't built it because of this crazy regulatory environment. So it's like this chicken and egg where they don't build it because of the regulations and the regulations are stringent because it's old technology that's more dangerous. Yeah. So someone's got to break out of that cycle. So what do you think is the appropriate level of regulation? Like surely there should not be no regulation yeah. right on on yeah. doing like you know th that meme about building a nuclear reactor in my backyard <laughs> yes, or whatever yes. um or in my in my basement um yeah. what do you think the appropriate level should should be what i would love to see is certain governors saying we are creating a safe space for innovation in various sectors like i think that there should be there should be a a you know a city or you know, a group of cities or several counties that are like, this is an innovation zone, zone for this thing. 
Mm-hmm. And the people who live here like understand there's probably elevated risks of this class of innovation. And um, I think that like when our founders created this uh, federalist model where there's different like competing local governments and there's different like shifting balances of power where California gets really bad because they're doing a bad job of running the state. And so people move to Texas like there's this natural balance going on. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we don't have that for nuclear because it's all regulated at the very top. And so I do think one of the things that could be really helpful other than, you know, just getting a, a general um, change in mindset from the administration would be specific governors uh, allowing things to happen in their state, which are more experimental. Uh, and then the second thing is what I'm doing, which is just saying, you know what, the whole, you know, body of regulation is just too burdensome to do this cheaply. Uh, we're going to do it you know, in the ocean where it's not going to melt down on anybody, we're going to do it extremely cheaply. And then we're going to sell the hydrocarbons back to the mainland. So is, is that the case of what happened in, um, with this reactor in Georgia that you were talking about that the, the governor was more open to it than other governors might've been? No, the, yeah, the Georgia reactor, um, it's a Vogel three. It followed the normal regulatory process through the NRC and, you know, through everything. And I mean, that's why it costs $30 billion. Yeah. Like that's, um, and that's $17 billion over budget. Mm -hmm. So more than double the budget. Um, It was supposed to turn on in 2016 and they found a leak in one of the seals Mm. and it's been seven years. So like that's, (laughs) it's, it's an unbelievable broken industry and people have been pointing that out. Like engineers have been pointing that out for a long time and having a hard time convincing you know, anybody of that because it's just such a highly technical topic. But now we can actually look at China and say, okay, they have 21 reactors under construction right now. We have two mm-hmm. and they're building them for 2 billion a gigawatt hour. Yeah. Whereas we're building them for 15. So there's clearly something extremely broken about our system of building nuclear capacity. Yeah. One of the things I picked up on right away when you first started talking about this, um, you know, especially as you were starting to talk about the, um, you know, using robotics on yep. manufacturing floors and, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing is the possibility that, you know, if we were able to lower these energy costs that we would be able to make things in America yeah. again for, um, much more cheaply than we're able to now. Totally. Um, so tell us a little more about that, uh, and, and the particular industries that are kind of ripe. Yeah. for disruption there. So I think that the, I think nuclear power or let's just say really cheap electricity, and I think nuclear power is the way to do that, but really cheap electricity is one of the easiest things that we can do to start decoupling and start competing with China. And there are you know a few industries that are super ripe for that. There's been a lot of drama recently because um, we're trying to you know reshore uh, semiconductors, mm-hmm. but some of the material inputs for semiconductors, China controls 97% of the market. So gallium and germanium are two elements that we really need. And, you know, for the chips act to get, you know, chips back on shore. Uh, but China has 97% of the supply and they're starting to restrict the supply. And is that, um, supply coming primarily from African countries or within their own borders? So a lot of it is coming from their own borders, but we have just, so basically, uh, gallium is a product of the aluminum process. Mm-hmm. When you're processing, uh, aluminum, you get gallium as part of an electrolysis process in that, and it's just extremely power intensive. That's what it comes down to. 
So there's plenty of uh, the raw ore in the earth. Like it's in Australia. We have it in the U.S. Like it's it's in Georgia. It's all over the place. Um, but in China, you know, they can get a coal furnace to get extremely hot and they can use that for heat processes and then they can, you know, turn that into really cheap electricity. And we're not doing that in the U.S. So there's just a natural market incentive for China to have 97% of that market because so much of that cost is driven by how cheap is the power. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a huge opportunity on rare metal supply chains that are driven by like high power cost processing uh, to, yeah, to be completely reshored. Uh, and I think that will also, uh, you know, like I said, it's it's actually less of an issue of where the ore comes from. Like Australia has massive, you know, ore deposits. There's plenty of countries in Africa that we can buy from, plenty of countries in South and Central America. But we really need to take the lead on this. Um, like to use Africa and South, uh, South America as an example, like again, with the Belt and Road Initiative, like China is building power plants for them. Um, they are becoming deeply indebted to China um, China's invested $800 billion into infrastructure in, you know, China, in, uh, Africa and South America. And, uh, it's a debt trap, right? Mm -hmm. So they are going out and it's, it's coal, it's gas, it's nuclear. Um, they are trying to sort of capture these supply chains, uh, through debt. And, uh, I think that's, that's a shame. Um, it, it it's a shame because we could do so much better. It's yeah. a shame because there's no technical limitation here. In fact, I would argue they get everything from us anyway. Like American laboratories are where they get it. The Los Alamos National Laboratory where um, Oppenheimer was working on the atomic bomb, it has since become a research facility. And recently it was revealed that over the last two decades, 150 scientists from the Los Alamos lab uh, went to China and have basically brought all of the research and tech that they were working on at Los Alamos wow. into China. So, and, and again, it's like, there's no technical limitation here. We have all the ore we need. We have all the tech we need. We have the smartest people in the world. Uh, we can build things better than anyone else in the world. The only thing that's like standing in our way is the national will to do it entrepreneurs to get it done and yeah, regulators to help us out. So is China using, um, currently a lot of these more advanced designs that you say people have been um, working on and been unable to accomplish here because of the regulation? Have they been doing some of that over there? That's the interesting thing is, is that no, for the most part, they have not been using advanced designs. Uh, this is a pretty common thing for China is like they copy something that's pretty well established for us and then they do it way cheaper because they have less regulation and they can just, you know, order, order it done. Um, you know, order everyone out of the way. And uh, I think that's really ironic. Like they're putting $400 billion into building nuclear power plants, but we have entrepreneurs here who know how to build power plants a hundred times better. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that's just a great like image of how much we are, you know, getting in our own way that like we know how to do these things at such an incredible level. Like we really do have the best talent in the world for for nuclear, for manufacturing, for everything. Um, the only thing that we don't have is like the actual infrastructure to get it done. The tooling, the factories, the zoning, 
Um, we, we even have the capital markets. In fact, like China relies on our capital markets to get their infrastructure problems done mm-hmm. uh, or their, their infrastructure uh, projects and, and manufacturing projects. Like if you work with Chinese developers and suppliers to create a new, um, you know, create something in manufacturing, like it's pretty likely that the capital is actually coming from here. Mm-hmm. So like, that's such a shame. It's, it's such a shame that our capital is going over there. Our IQ is going over there. Our IP is going over there. Um, we could so easily do it here with the right regulatory environment. Um, are they, the the Chinese, um, implementing any of these kind of advanced robotic systems for manufacturing that yes. you've been talking about? Yeah, okay. so um, China has what I would call the Manhattan Project going on over there in two areas. One is AI and another is robotics. So they have a national scale project to take the lead with AI and robotics. And the reason for that is somewhat obvious on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you want to lead on uh, manufacturing. The thing I think people sort of discounted don't realize is like China has a huge demographic problem on their hands. Mm -hmm. Um, It's estimated by the end of the century that they'll only have half of their population count. So if you're in China's position and that's the reality that you're facing, you want to decouple labor from your manufacturing dominance. You want labor to be a smaller factor in your ability to produce goods cheaper than anybody else. And you want cheap energy. So um, I like to point out there's like three pillars of any any manufacturable good. You know, I've got a coffee cup here, I've got an Apple Watch, I've got a microphone. All three of these things have three pillars. They are intelligence, energy, and dexterity. So energy, you know, you just need the kinetic, you know, ability to manipulate matter. Uh, intelligence, you need to be able to put it together in the right way to make it work. And dexterity is the ability to, you know, actually move things in, in physical space. Mm-hmm. So that's how all physical products have been made since the beginning of time. It used to be that humans did all three of those things. So like intelligence in your mind, energy from the food you eat, dexterity with your fingers. That's like pre-industrial revolution. And then in the industrial revolution, we started moving some of the dexterity over to machines. So mm-hmm. you have, you know, um, looms and you've got various like mechanical processes that are really repeatable. But for the most part, the the intelligence of those processes is still in our minds. Um, and the energy actually started switching over to, you know, coal and, and gas and that sort of thing. I think what we're on the verge of now, and this is what the United States needs to wake up to quickly and what China already has woken up to, is that the next revolution I think is all about the intelligence and the dexterity finally catching up. And what that means is you're going to have intelligence that you can actually just pay for uh, at, with energy mm-hmm. instead of having to <clears throat> hire humans, which have their own scale limits. And, you know, you constantly have to deal with the limitations of their outputs and paying them, and, you know, all those sorts of things. You can actually just pay for intelligence from a computer. You can pay for dexterity from a robot. And at the end of the day, that means that how much your electricity costs, how much your heat costs is like directly proportional to how much the output good costs. So yeah, I mean, they have um, an incredible effort with both robotics and AI. Um, I think the AI one is a little easier to see. Like they have constantly shocked everybody on all of their um, iOS apps on the app store, like Mm -hmm. the TikTok algorithm and these sorts of things. And some of the facial recognition technologies that they're 
using uh, and starting to deploy in like African countries to allow yeah. dictators to identify their citizens and that sort of thing. Um, it's a massive, massive priority for them. On the robotics side, like they've filed three times more robotics patents than we have uh, every year for the last like five years. They just put out their five-year plan on robotics. So like they're they're awake to this and, and we need to be as well. So um, on the American side, uh, you know, we, we, we do have a, a population problem coming down the pike right now, though, certainly yeah. not um, as drastic as theirs. Yeah. Um, one, one problem that I can foresee here is like what you do with um, American manufacturers mm -hmm. and, and, and workers that are currently um, in those kinds of factories. What do you suggest we do with them? <laughs> with the workers themselves? Yeah. I mean, I think that our manufacturing class is aging out. I think mm -hmm. it's going to be less a question of what do we do with them and who do we replace them with when they retire? I think that's yeah. a much bigger problem than what do we do with them? Um, I mean, my, my personal thought on the people who are in our <clears throat> manufacturing base is like they are in manufacturing because they want to see, you know, the United States produce um, incredible products for its people. Like we, we want to be able to drive cars. We want to be able to, uh, you know, visit our, our relatives and communicate with phones and these sorts of things. So like, I think, I don't think there's a conflict there. I, I know sometimes in conservative uh, viewpoints, there seems to be a conflict between the march of technology and sort of leaving behind a, a class of workers. But I think our problem is going to be the exact opposite. Like there hmm. are not enough people to build all of the things that we have exported to China. And that we need to bring back. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's very interesting. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, how all of this, all the work that you're doing, um, in our our nuclear in industry in general, um, could help uh, with our energy independence. Yes. Um, uh, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, energy independence is one of the biggest things that is facing us right now. And it's a shame because so much of it is driven by our own internal fears and conflicts and has less to do with real physical constraints and more to do with politics. Um, but I think that we can we can break out of it. So right now, you know, we import uh, gas, we import petrol, and uh, we import a fair amount of uranium as well. And uh, for a while there, we were like during Trump, we were a net oil exporter. Now we're not anymore. We have this like volleyball relationship with energy and it keeps putting us into really weird situations. We, you know, had Biden going and meeting MBS and doing this weird fist bump. And mm -hmm. then now like gas costs five bucks. So what's going on with that? <laughs> and OPEC is dropping. So like we need to get out of this volleyball game. And the way that we do that is not switching to wind it's not switching to waves it's not switching to solar as much as people would love that to for that to be the solution um it's just not and the reason is our entire economy runs on hydrocarbons mm -hmm. we need hydrocarbons uh, people think of the energy grid like if i say the energy grid in the us what you think of is electricity right you think of like cables stretching between houses and towns to a power station uh, that energy grid is actually pretty small compared to this shadow energy grid that we have, which is natural gas. Mm -hmm. We have a massive volume of natural gas moving through our pipelines underground 
they power our power stations. Um, they, you know, come and power your, your heat and your AC in your home, um, your stove. So hydrocarbons are, are just massively integrated into how our economy works. Um, there's just really, really great natural advantages to them. They're highly energy dense per weight and per volume. Um, and you know, we have a, just a huge amount of infrastructure that can utilize them in ways that make humans lives better every single day. So it's not going to be this like sudden, um, transition away from, uh, you know, away from importing oil. Now, could we start drilling all of our own oil? Uh, absolutely. And we totally should, we should be drilling our own oil. We should be fracking our own gas. Uh, and I think that's like, yes, definitely do that. That said, even, you know, oil and gas is a different kind of energy dependency. It's mm -hmm. not depending on other nations, but it is depending on, uh, natural resources and it's depending on sort of the fickleness of markets. So like one of the things that happens in gas and oil and gas markets is like entire companies get clobbered and go bankrupt with price swings and it that really affects the price and we get these terrible fluctuations and uh the reason is oil and gas is just difficult to extract from the ground you're having to constantly do construction projects so um i have a actually a massive amount of admiration for the existing like oil and gas industries like i think we owe so much of our lives and what we do and the ability to you know see our relatives from states over I, you know i got here on a plane i woke up at 2 30 this morning in <laughs> moscow idaho and i flew here to washington dc um that is like completely downstream from so many people working in hydrocarbon industries so um i think the way that we get energy independence is not to get away from hydrocarbons it is to produce our own hydrocarbons on our own terms. Mm -hmm. We use nuclear fission, which has just unbelievable margins as far as like, uh, it, uranium is incredibly cheap and it produces an incredible amount of heat and you can convert that heat to natural gas and to petrol at very low cost. And it's completely stable. It's not dependent on other countries. It's not dependent on politics. It's not dependent on, you know, ex constant exploration of new areas, construction, EPA regulations, you know, local, you know, town saying we don't want to drill here. We don't want to well there. It's, uh, it's independent on all fronts, uh, you know, foreign and, uh, you know, in a certain sense, dependent on, uh, independent of geography as well. Yeah. As you've said earlier in the episode, uh, a couple of times, I think a lot of it comes back to, uh, public opinion, yes. you know, basically just the way that people think, yep. um, about energy, whether that's oil, natural gas or nuclear, um, what do you think is the the best way? Um, I mean, surely it's not just like a massive PR campaign. Maybe it's just success. But mm -hmm. what do you think is the best way to you know educate the average American about energy? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there is already a resurgence of people thinking about nuclear, and uh, so there's already I think a, a bit of a sentiment change happening. I've noticed a lot more people starting to talk about it, starting to think about it. And uh, I think those efforts will continue. I think my piece of that, just to answer it for myself, is um, I think if we're successful here and we do end up generating a lot of U.S. power very cheaply using nuclear energy, you know, just offshore, I think that will cause a perception shift. Like, mm -hmm. oh, my gas is way cheaper, my electric bill is way cheaper, and um, you know, pointing to nuclear energy for that is is a big thing. 
Um, but also we, this just goes to a more general thing. Like we need more, uh, rigorous education in the United States. People mm -hmm. need to actually be able to understand basic math, you know, basic physics. Uh, this stuff is actually not complicated. Um, one of the things that people completely misunderstand about nuclear is that they perceive these things as like, you know, being incredibly complex, having to, you know, be products of massive, like fleets of scientists and engineers just to get anything simple. And, uh, I just like to pull out pictures of like what Oak Ridge looked like, what mm -hmm. Los Alamos looked like. It's like, actually, it's just kind of dudes with hammers building stuff. <laughs> That's where nuclear started. Um, so yeah, I think that there's definitely, you know, public messaging with, um, there are, there are various organizations who, you know, advocacy, advocacy groups who are working on that, but yeah, also just like in the education system in general, um, we need to start to take responsibility as Americans for our own en energy, our own industries, um, and really own this stuff, stop exporting it. Do you think it's been a, um, particular like uh right versus left issue like is is there a political party that's particularly better on energy or is yeah. everyone kind of afraid of phone calls from constituents i think everyone's afraid of phone calls obviously republicans are a little bit better in energy uh, maybe you could say significantly better in energy but they're they're still sort of subject to popular opinion um i think you know, natural gas and, and oil refinement, like tons of it is in Texas, North Dakota, like very Republican states. And, um, you know, that's, that's definitely because of those political allegiances. But I think that these types of differences don't matter so much when we're dealing with a, an order of magnitude difference in technology. So mm -hmm. there's certain technologies that come along that are so different, so much better that they can transcend, you know, the political, normal political boundaries. If you're talking about solar and wind, it's suddenly super political because the marginal differences between these technologies and what we have now are super tiny. They might be a little bit cheaper or they might be a little bit more expensive and we have to get this subsidy in, in order for, you know, for them to work. That's where it gets super political. Yeah. But when you walk in and you say, look, this is like 10 times cheaper, um, that can transcend some some political boundaries because yeah everybody wants everything around them to be cheaper isaiah where can people find you keep up with the great work that you're doing um if they're if they're so inclined after listening to this yeah. great episode yeah uh you can find me on uh, x.com as it's now called formerly you know the app formerly known as twitter <laughs> <laughs> um and, yeah isaiah underscore p underscore taylor and um yeah Thank you so much for having me on, Nick. Yeah, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it, especially on so short notice. We yes. literally talked about doing this episode last week, and you and next day you text me. You were like, cool, my flight's booked. Let's, Let's do, do it. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> yep, always, man. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. I told you that would be a very fascinating episode. Uh, I can guarantee you that I'm going to be on Wikipedia for the rest of the evening looking up all the things that he talked about. Um, I had to do a lot of research ahead of time to, to feel uh, equipped enough to do this podcast episode, but I'm very uh, uh, grateful to Isaiah for explaining things in, in such a simple way uh, for my simple brain. Um, so thank you again for joining us uh, for this episode of Moment of Truth. We'll be back again next Monday. As always, please rate and review the podcast, five stars only. Please feel free to leave a review. You can check us out at AmericanMoment.org. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Nick S. Solheim. That's S-O-L-H-E-I-M. And you can follow American Moment on Twitter, or I should be saying X, I guess, at at AMMoment.org. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.